after the truth of what is being said from Scripture seeps into your heart, convicts you that you're not in line with God, hopefully you'll be open to some discipleship that might bring about a uh, real heart-to-heart conversation with God on a regular basis. So last week we talked about communication, that it is from God, and it is something that's sacred, and yet we tend to use it um, like it's ours. We tend to take authority over it. We speak without any thought of what God wants said, as though our words are as important as his, or even more important when we forget about him. We talked about how Satan entered into the Garden of Eden, and he challenged God's authority by taking speech and using it for whatever he wanted to do with it. And what he did with it was destroy human communication. He produced a lie that reinterpreted reality as though any of us in our finiteness can actually understand reality as it actually is without God's guidance, without his direction for him to speak to us and give us godly words to speak in any given situation. You know, the monks used to go through this thing where they would uh, remain silent for a long time. But that's not what really a discipleship of silence is. We are allowing the discipline of controlling your words to take over. It's really going before God and speaking the fitted word, the word that God wants said that's going to bring about the greatest good, the greatest healing, the greatest truth, the greatest conviction, the greatest holiness. But we don't think that way. As Americans, we tend to run off at the mouth. I've never done that, but I'm sure some of you have. (laughs) Satan has really instilled within us a new way of speaking. I mean, think about what Adam and Eve had prior to that as they communed with God and God alone. They probably sounded just like their father. And then instantly, Adam becomes a convert to Satan. Instantly, he starts accusing Eve, his wife. He starts blaming God. And we see this transition take place where responsibility is shifted to other people. We try to avoid the pain of responsibility and the pressures of it. So today I want to talk about how that moved into the future, how we deal with it on a regular basis. We talk about the believer's battle with words. I want my goal today to be this, that you become keenly aware of your sin every time you push God off his throne to sit in righteous judgment of somebody else. I don't really have any answers for you today. I do have a picture of truth, a picture of word usage that I want you to hold in your heart so that every time it takes over, every time that idol consumes you, you recognize it. So that over the next month or two, you begin to think, Lord God, why can't I glorify you with my words? Lord God, why do I keep falling into the same arguments over and over again? And that when the opportunity comes, where you are able to reach up for what God's offering, you'll take it. Secondly, I want you to realize that this insanity is coming from your own idolatry. We always want to do like Adam. We want to blame somebody else. But the truth is, our words are our words. What we say in any given moment isn't because of what somebody else did. We always want to do that. Oh, if they hadn't done this, then I wouldn't have. It's not true. Something else has taken over. Something else has consumed you, and it's not God when those moments hit. So I want you to become aware that those words that you wish you had never said, that you wish you could take back, they are words from an idolatrous heart. We'll explain that in a minute. And lastly, if there's time, I'd like to beg you to consider the need to find a friend who will intervene with you and bring you back into sanity, and not just once, for the rest of your lives. All right. 
Let's pray. I want to pray about this message right now. I want to pray about the words we speak. Let's pray. Father, we need your help right now. Each of us have come in here comfortable with the way things are. Each of us have sat down expecting to experience a worship service, but not fundamentally changing. Each of us are assuming that we will figure it out, giving our education, giving our time in technology and history, that we'll find the answer eventually. It'll just come to us somehow. Help us to admit we don't have the answers. Only you do. Help us to really look in our heart of hearts right now and recognize our tongues are out of control. We need you. We need you to be Lord of our tongues. We need you to be Lord of our hearts. Bless us with that desire. If we don't have it, if we're too tired to change, too lazy to change, too distracted to change, break through right now, Lord. Don't allow anyone sitting in here to think that they are somehow immune from you, somehow hidden from you. Please, Lord, break in. Let that be our prayer today. We ask this in Jesus' name. We can't really help each other unless we are able to get our words before God. We really can't do this work of discipleship we're called to do unless we allow our hearts to be submissive to Christ on a regular basis. And this means you need to identify it on a regular basis. Daily, keep submitting your words to Christ. Daily, keep submitting your conversations to him. The captivity of our words to sin, if you're not aware of it, it's because you're not taking that time to reflect. You're not taking that time to really come before the word of God and weep over the times you've said things you wish you hadn't said. We come across these words all the time, and they become quite evident, really, when you think about how we speak about other things. I was at a youth conference several years ago, and some of my teens came tumbling out of the elevator, just laughing themselves silly. And when they came up to me in the halls, I was coming down, I said, what are you guys laughing about? He said, oh, some Mexican guy farted in the elevator. And of course, you know, for some reason, junior hires, I don't know. Anyways, it stuck with me. You know, some Mexican guy farted in the elevator. Now, I was born in 1964, which means I had the whole brunt of the civil rights movement on top of me. Education, that's all it was about. The idea of stereotypical thinking was droned into us. And so when they use the word Mexican guy, it's stuck. It's like, why, why Mexican guy? Why was that word even thrown out there? Why not just some guy farted in the elevator? I said, why? And so I asked him, I said, why did you use the word Mexican guy? Why did you say that? He said, well, you know. <laughs> I don't know. I have no idea what you meant by that. I said, well, you know. No, I really don't know. What did you mean when you said that? Because you've conveyed nothing by saying it. If you've ever been to Mexico, you know it doesn't do anything to say a Mexican guy because they have every flavor of person there, just like we do in here. Uh, you have every shade of melanin covering their skin, every hair color, every eye color, every height, weight, every intelligence. It's, it's all diverse. To say Mexican guy, you've said absolutely nothing except for one thing. Now I know that you think in racial categories. Our words give us away. They show what's really going on in the heart, how we actually think, how we actually perceive reality. So what I want to do today is I want us to take a look at our arguments, because this is where it comes out the most. You ever notice that when, <laughs> I've noticed it especially here at this church, especially when I'm dealing with the other, other congregation, uh, their service, that when they get angry, their accent comes out. 
Have you ever noticed that? <laughs> Have you ever noticed when they get angry, all of a sudden this heavy accent comes out? That's not the only thing that comes out. When people get angry, what they truly value is now defended. It's now protected. It's now being coveted. It's now being wanted, progressed in some way in the argument. So this idea of uh, argumentation, getting in fights, if that's kind of where your life is, if that's kind of the things you experience, maybe you'll relate to this. I want to tell you a mostly fictitious story. <laughs> I grew up playing football in the fall, basketball in the winter, baseball in the spring. And uh, when my kids finally became old enough to play a sport, guess which sport they picked? Soccer. <laughs> so sad. Um, <laughs> So anyways, we took him out to soccer practice, put the little cleats on him, they ran around, did all that stuff, and I watched from the sidelines. You know, having coached as long as I had, I was pretty interested watching what was going on. I re- when I realized, you know, a monkey could do this, I'd signed up the second year. Oh, sorry, soccer coaches, you know, anyways. Uh, but I realized how easy it was, though. I mean, soccer's a really great sport. Um, came in the second year, I started coaching, you know, and my, my practices were mechanized precision. They were genius. Uh, <laughs> But really, I don't mean to brag or anything, but in an hour and a half, you know, we had covered pretty much everything there was to know about soccer and every other sport under the sun. And uh, the genius, well, it was a Christian league, too. This was great about it. You only had to have one practice a week, one game a week, and you were done. It was awesome. I grew up in a household where we never did anything but sports. I don't think we ever ate together my entire high school year, uh, years. Anyways, as we went through this, they had us do devotions halfway through the practices because it was a Christian league, which I really loved doing. In fact, I had a whole scheme worked out where I was going to give them the gospel on the fourth practice. You know, so I had them building up to this thing. First, there is a God, and we move on to the progression. And on week three, I was going to talk about the issue of sin. And as the week approached, I rewrote it several times, the version how I was going to do it, because I had to be age-appropriate, yet it had to be impactful. And as I wrote it, I began to imagine all of them coming to Christ, that they would stand up like the Philippian jailer and say, what must I do to be saved? <laughs> it didn't happen. I imagine the parents who also eavesdrop, you know, would actually have some sort of conversion experience. I imagine in my head that the rest of the practice would have to be canceled because we were going to have this, everyone's going to be praying and confessing their sins and we're all coming to Christ. We're going to find churches for all of them where they live and stuff. It was this great imagining taking place in my mind. So when the day came, first half of practice is over, I brought him over to the blanket that I always provided and Timmy was squirting people with his water bottle as usual. So as I was going on through the presentation of this uh, very important message, Timmy kept goofing off. I had to keep bringing him back in, bringing it back into the discussion. He kept trying to derail the whole thing. After I was done, only a few kids seemed to get it. The rest were all saying, can I play Goldie? Can I play Goldie? Can I play Goldie? Not what I was expecting. But I comforted myself with the idea, well, got five more devotions. Maybe that'll produce something then. So anyways, frustrated with that, I continued. After practice, Timmy's mom confronted me and told me how she didn't appreciate what God or the Bible had to say about sin and that she didn't think God cared about such trivial things like obedience to parents and lying and any sin. Then she proceeded to tell me about her God of love, how her God would never create such a place as hell and he would never punish sin. To which I replied fictitiously, Okay, I said it in my mind, but I didn't say it out loud. Well, at least your worldview is consistent. I have coached football, basketball, and baseball for over 20 years, had over two dozen teams, and I have never met a spoiled brat 
more affected by you by, by, by this by, than your kid. And you are right. Your God won't punish sins because he doesn't exist. You've made him up to suit your own sins. On behalf of all coaches and teachers everywhere, thank you for raising a child whose own sinful appetites have become his moral standard. I am sure he is every teacher's nightmare and that he will have a long and productive career ruining every teacher's lesson and derailing every classmate's chance for growth while, this, while he squanders his education and lives in your basement until his mid-30s. <laughs> have a nice day. What started off as a very hopeful attempt to share the gospel, a, a very passion desire to see people come to Christ, turned into anger and frustration. And instead of speaking words of life, I ended up speaking words to a lost soul that would push them further away from the gospel. Where did this come from? Well, Jesus tells us in Luke 6, he says, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. What was my heart doing at that moment? And how did it get there? I would like to explain how godless attitudes arise in us, build in us, and take over. Even the pursuit of intentions that are pure become, can become monstrous. Timmy's mom did not cause those words. She simply provided the opportunity or the common word now, the trigger for those words to come out of my heart. My explosion was not her fault. It's because something had radically changed in my, art, in my heart as I prepared for this message. Jesus' brilliant revelation talks about the heart is the one that's doing the speaking. So what is going on in the heart? If we're going to begin to understand our trouble with meaningful relationships... And by extension, meaningful discipleship, we must start with a new heart. James tells us that our tongues are restless evil. Jeremiah tells us heart, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? The people like Timmy's mom, the situations like a rebellious child during an important message do not make us say what we say. They are only the occasions for our heart to reveal the sin within. Interestingly enough, arguments not only bring out these accents we've talked about, they reveal these sins within ourselves. If you were to stop long enough to analyze and look at yourself from the standpoint of Satan in the Garden of Eden, you would recognize that at some point you took authority that doesn't belong to you. You became God in that situation with no thought of God. That you decided to interpret everything the way you saw it as though you were God creating reality. And you were trying to force that on the person you were arguing with. In that moment, you should realize, and I hope you realize, that an idol has taken over. Another God is speaking. Another ruler has conquered your heart. I may have taken that soccer team because no other fathers were available that season. But I thought I was a pretty good coach. That seed of pride was already there. I may have loved children and wished them to see salvation. But I also thought I was pretty good at sharing a devotion and wanted other people to see how good I was at sharing a devotion. It seems that my desire to please God 
and my desire to please myself were at war within me. James offers some really powerful insights in James chapter 4. I want to take a moment just to acknowledge that. So if you would, please, stand, open up to James chapter 4. And as we read this passage, I want you to recognize what he's talking about. He's talking about a duality of spirit where the Christian, he's talking to Christians, are allowing their own passions, their own pleasures, their own cravings to push God off his throne of their hearts and to allow those gods, those false gods, to speak. Listen to what he says here in James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? But he gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your heart, your heart you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord and he will lift you up. May the Lord add to the reading of his scripture our faith in Jesus' name. Please have a seat. When desire challenges God, James asks the question right from the start, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Now, the modern counselor will look at that and say, well, okay, I, I know the answer to that. All you need is better listening skills. All you need to do is learn how to communicate your wants and how those wants will make, if they're satisfied, will make you feel to the person you're trying to communicate them with. And if you couch that all in iMessaging, we can pretty much remove or at least reduce these chronic arguments you're having. James's reply is very different, radically different. He says, submit, submit your wants to God. When I speak, it comes out of what I want. Even right now, as I am speaking, I want the word of God to come forward. But if I want it for myself, because I want to look proficient in what I'm doing, if I want it for myself, it's now pushed God off the throne. And now my passions, my pleasures come to the surface. If I want it for you or for God, it has nobility. It serves God's purposes. Keep this in mind as we move through this. Jesus' words, the mouth speaks out of the overflow of the heart, is true. What we say is out of the overflow of the heart or what our heart wants, what it's pursuing, what it's interested in, what it's thinking about, Right? Now, he's not saying, let's get this straight, he's not saying the problem is evil desires. In fact, oftentimes, a very noble desire, like sharing the gospel with a group of soccer children, 
it's very good desire. It's not that it's evil. It's that it's taken it a different form. It's become an idol rather than remaining a desire given to us by God. He's not saying desires are wrong. In fact, we need desires. We have desires all the time. Our chief desire is to worship. That's given to us by God. He's saying the problem comes when desires take God's throne. Whatever controls the heart will control the tongue. In fact, it could be said that once a desire has taken over my heart, I can only respond to you in one of two ways. If you help me get what I want, I appreciate you. If you get in my way, I become angry with you. As a servant of God, it comes on us to give over our wants to God. James says in verse 2, you covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. Our wants must be given back over to God. Somehow the soccer practice, a good desire to share the gospel, babbled within my heart until it took control of my heart. I wasn't sharing that out of my love for God or love for people. I was sharing it because I thought I had written a great devotional. I was going to save those kids. I was going to alter their destiny for salvation. Only God should have authority over my heart. So when desires become idols, see, I didn't even see it coming. Here I was working through the week and going back to that message again and again, rewriting it, rewriting it, simplifying it, trying to make it interesting. And the original desire to seek and save the lost given to me by God himself had morphed. It changed into something else. If I had, in fact, been motivated by a love for God and a love for someone else, I would have used the opportunity afforded by Timmy's mom's confrontation, and I was shared with her the love of God with gentleness, with respect. Instead, I had another God who wasn't satisfied reigning in my heart. I had another idol reigning in my heart who was not happy with the way things turned out. So Timmy's mom and Timmy became the focus of my anger focus of my disappointment. My original motives, love, had changed. I wanted, I coveted, I demanded. And once a want becomes a demand, it's speaking very much like an idol. It's acting very much like God. At that moment, it had effectively replaced God as the controller of my heart. Scripture calls it idolatry. Now, idolatry, very simple. So whatever the heart, whatever's controlling your heart other than God, that's an idol. And I don't think we recognize just how prevalent it is. It's constant. There are multiple times throughout the day where we push God off his throne so our other God can have his say, can have his way. For instance, the natural desire for success at work or school becomes a demand to be appreciated the desire to have enough money just to pay the bills morphs into a searching for riches, seeking after treasures. The desire to be a good parent becomes a desire to enhance our own reputation because our kids act, look, walk good. Sorry, well. Desire for friendship oftentimes becomes a need for acceptance. 
or perceived need for acceptance. What was once a healthy desire becomes an idol. This is why G James commands us in verse 8, purify your hearts, you double-minded. Stop pushing God off the throne. You can't have all these idols in your throne room of your heart. Just God should reign. He says in verse 3, when you pray, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. Now think this through. Think about the complexity of what we're talking about here. Rather than prayers offered by a love for God and our neighbors, I pray for that which will bring me pleasure. Think of that. As I am praying, I'm committing idolatry. When God should be at the forefront of my mind, where I should be most humbled, most kneeled before him, most exalted in my spirit because of his love for me. At that moment, I'm still pushing him aside and saying, but I need this, I want this, I have to have this, I covet this. And we offer it up as a prayer. And if our prayers contain such double-mindedness, how much more idolatry do our conversations contain when God is not Lord of our words? And lastly, going beyond that, what chance does an argument have in letting God speak? When an idol has become so strong that it actually possesses your mind, takes over your emotions, starts running forward with this agenda in the face of someone you probably love, what chance does God have to reign in that situation? One more step. James is intense. Um, he takes it all the way, if you look at verse 2, he takes it all the way to murder. So we need to take a little bit further. When idols kill. When a desire replaces God, it becomes an idol. It can be permanent or temporary, doesn't matter, but it will kill. It's hard to hold our desires loosely. It's hard to keep them in their place. The more time we give thinking about them, we kind of develop them into a power where they begin to wage war in our hearts to actually go against the throne of God, to take dominion. This movement from a natural, healthy desire, we elevate it and exalt it. In a sense, the more we think about it, the more we dream about it, we are crafting idols. We are carving them in our own hearts and minds. I think we do it so well, so quickly, we don't even recognize it. You know, this time you teach the kids about the uh, Ten Commandments, and you get to the Second Commandment, talking about crafting idols, and most of them just dismiss it. Well, we don't do that. Yeah, we do. We're so good at it, we don't even need to do it physically. We can do it mentally. How does it happen? When a desire is valued over God, fantasized over, crafted, and given way too much attention, it grows stronger in battles for control of the heart. Eventually, once it's strong enough, it becomes a demand. Next, since the demands aren't being met, they become frustrated somehow because you're not God. You can't have everything you want. The frustration, the feeling of loss, the feeling of deprivation, the anxiety that comes up over it, you start thinking of it differently. It's no longer just a desire. It's no longer just a want. It becomes a need. I need this to feel at peace. 
I need this to have it off my table so I don't have to stop thinking about it. And once it receives a need status, that's when killing starts happening. That's when we start destroying other people and ourselves. Let me illustrate this. Um, a lot of, in, in the counseling I've done with different parents, it's interesting. One thing that keeps coming up is this idea of a clean house. <laughs> I think it's funny. Some of the things we argue about is really funny. You look at the eternal scope of our character, right, of what we are, that we are immortal beings, you know, that the clean house becomes such a huge issue in the home. It doesn't matter which spouse is the one who's frustrated with it, but here's what happens. The spouse is thinking, oh, you know, my house, it's not clean, it's not put away. The things are just laying around all over the place. Why am I the only one cleaning up at this place? How can I think straight? How can I actually have any order in my mind? How can I actually function in this kind of environment? This person who said they love me is after me. They're trying to ruin me. They actually you start getting paranoid about it. You start thinking, they did this on purpose. These dishes are left here for a reason. You actually start talking to yourself that way. You start murdering your relationship. You start breaking your marriage vows, which you promised, you know, sickness and health, better for worse. Doesn't matter. And you start expressing it as needs. Where the spouse eventually says, I need a clean house. Do you? Really? Some of the things that come out of people's mouths in my own. I need respect. Really? I need to be, I need to have you call me if you're going to be late. Now, teenagers don't read too much into that. It's just your parents saying it because they want it. You know, they want it really bad because they love you so much. And if you love them back, you would do it because you don't want them to worry about you. But they don't really need it. It's not a need. But that desire has moved into the position of a need. I need your obedience, some parents might say. I need you to need me. That's an interesting one. Once a desire is perceived as a need, some disappointments become a matter of life and death. And to speak metaphorically, the idol begins to demand human sacrifice. You're willing to sacrifice the relationship. You're willing to jeopardize it. You're willing to hurt it to get what you want. Because you think if you don't have this, if you don't satisfy that idol's calling in your heart, you cannot be at peace. And the only reason you don't have any peace is because this idol, whatever it is, can't give you the peace that only God can give you. It can't give you unconditional love. It can't give you unconditional acceptance. It can't give you itself. It can only take. Our need now becomes a vital expectation, and unfulfilled expectations often lead to some form of punishment. I don't know. If we could get a testimony here from the different spouses, you know, just how many stupid arguments you've had and what they've been over. There's been some really bizarre arguments. I mean, over the, the darndest things. Um, a lot of them revolve around uh, things in the household. Some of them revolve around church. Some of them revolve around the kids. Lots of them revolve around the kids. Sorry, guys. I don't know. I, anybody got a staple gun? I'll just... <laughs> Anyways, um, is killing too extreme? Well, look at the verse 2 again. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. I'm sorry, I reversed the sentences there. But the first sentence of verse 2. You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. When our desires become idols, they kill, they steal, they destroy. When James says in verse 4, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? 
Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Is that overstating the case, claiming that it leads to killing? I don't know. Think about it. Adultery usually leads to, often leads to the death of a marriage. People have murdered over adultery. Becoming an enemy of God doesn't sound very safe. Becoming Satan's friend, entering into a fellowship of death, doesn't sound very safe. If adultery takes place when I give the love I promise to one person and give it to another happens, then spiritual adultery occurs when I give the love that belongs to God alone to something or someone else. James is saying something very profound here. Our conflicts are rooted in spiritual adultery. And I don't know about you, but my, my, my one desire in life is to be faithful to God. That's my one prayer. Never wanted to be a great anything. Great husband, great father, great preacher, great minister, great American. I've always ever wanted just to be faithful to God. Just faithful. And in that, it requires the death of spiritual adultery. It requires me to turn my heart and my mind to God, to take every thought captive and submit it to Christ. How prevalent is Christ in your life? How often do you have his ear throughout your day? I would go so far as to say that our arguments begin when we want something more than God, a possession, respect, approval, a belief to be believed by others, facts to be seen as we interpret them, etc. When we want these more than God and believe we must have them, we push God off his throne, we argue for a new dominion and accuse others if they don't let us have our affair with the idol of our making. This is spiritual adultery. I would suspect, unless you're Paul or Stephen, most of your arguments probably are spiritual adultery. I don't care how right you are, how, how you got your, all your facts in alignment. If you take it to that place where you're not loving God in that argument and not loving your brother or sister in that argument, you are committing spiritual adultery. You're allowing something else to speak for you desire of your own crafting. So my goal today was to make you keenly aware of your sin every time you push God off his throne and to see the self-righteous judgment as idolatry. There is a right way to argue. I'm not saying argument is wrong. What I am saying is most of our arguments aren't in that vein. They're not discussed. They're not presented in a, in a righteous way. They're not Humble, they're not loving God and loving the person, loving truth. They move into getting what you want out of the situation. I want you to realize that when you do this, you are coming as close to insanity as you can possibly get without actually being insane. Because when the idol has hold of you that strongly, that you're willing to hurt someone else created in the image of God with your words, you've created a new reality within you and you're standing on that reality as though it's real. It's powerful. It's subtle. Just like Satan. 
when we engage in this kind of argumentation, when we hurt, when we kill, steal, and destroy the relationship, we're allowing Satan to speak again. You know, the gospel holds out the promise of a new heart. We're not meant to stay there. And some of you guys have been Christians for decades, and we're still having the same arguments, still having the same frustrations in our relationships. It's time to turn the page. It's time to embrace the whole of the gospel, allowing God to be God over all of our lives, including our words. This is where discipleship is going to take place, or not at all. The gospel, this new heart, is going to break us away from the enslavement of our sin nature. This is why James ends it by saying, Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Come near to God, and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. If we do not deal with what we really love, what really rules our hearts, we will never be able to speak to one another in the way God calls us to. So just remember this. If you're sitting there thinking, well, this is a bummer message. Thanks, Pastor Kirk. God only reveals our hearts and points out the sin because he loves us. If you right now are awakened to it, if right now you're looking at yourself and going, yeah, this has to end. I need Christ. Then a great good has been done. Because he's turned your heart back to the Father where you are now depending upon him on rather than depending on the things you used to depend on, your own intelligence, your own evaluation, your own godliness. So I want to encourage you, brothers and sisters, to think well on this. He shows us these things so he can work out our salvation in us and help us to help each other work out our salvation. So the ball is in your court now. You get to decide what you're going to do with this. It is my prayer, and it will sound like a curse, but it's actually a prayer. I'm praying that you are just pierced in the heart every time you get in these arguments. That the words of Satan in the Garden of Eden come back to your mind, flood in. And the calling of Christ to submit to him just ends the whole thing, ends the argument right mid-sentence. I'm praying that this happens over and over again for the next couple months. And that you and I will be able to work out a discipleship that really does allow us to bear each other's burdens. The discipleship that allows us to wash each other with the word of God. It's something you're going to have to submit to. Nobody can force you. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this is your church. Each of us sitting here are your children. And right now, James has revealed to us our own minds, our own idolatry. And so before we take communion today, help each of us to confess, to lay before you our pretend lordship over our own lives, our pretend lordship over our own words, and to give you the grace, to give you the, the open door, the embrace, Lord, so you can do what you want to do. Humble us now, Lord, as we worship. We ask all this in Jesus' name. We're about to take communion now, and uh, as you know, this is a time of meditation, a time of asking yourself, 
Are you in right relationship with Christ? Are you in right relationship with his church? I want to read to you a passage really quick. 